This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 68, Culinary History of Atlanta. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're doing things a little different, and that's because I'm letting local entrepreneur, author, and friend Akila McConnell tell you guys all about Atlanta's early cooking and restaurant history. This interview is packed with incredible stories that I would bet none of you have heard before. We talk about the people that have been preparing and selling Atlanta's food even before the railroad tracks were laid. I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Victoria. So glad to be here. Uh, I'm Akila McConnell. I'm the owner of Unexpected Atlanta Tours and Stories. I'm also a culinary historian, and my book, uh, Culinary History of Atlanta, came out about six months ago. I wanted just to share with the listeners kind of your backstory, how you got to Atlanta, and then how we got to this book. Sure. I'm actually from Auburn, Alabama, War Eagle, and I came to Atlanta about 30, 20 some odd years ago, um, actually for uh, college, and I fell in love with the city. I moved away for a little bit, uh, and I got my law degree. I came back. I actually was a practicing attorney here in Atlanta, but my passion was always food, not just eating food, but the stories associated with food. And so I wasn't super happy with being an attorney. I was actually listening to the radio and I always tell people, you know, especially doing podcast interviews and radio interviews that for me, at least, I mean, radio changed my life. Um, I used to listen to the Burt Show in the morning, uh, which I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. And uh, there was a Burt Show guest who had quit her job and she decided to travel around the world uh, and her name was Susie and for about six months they followed her. Susie Goes Around the World was the segment and this is back in 2005 or something like that so an age ago and I thought to myself this is the most amazing thing Uh, and I went home and I kept telling my husband we should do this and I was really fed up with my job so we quit we quit our jobs we actually um the original plan was we would travel around the world for six months but one month in I started writing just for fun for my family I wrote a blog uh the blog was named the road forks it's still out there it's still still (laughs) out there in the ether but the blog was really about um stories associated with food we were traveling around writing and I was writing about food and travel and what I never expected is that people really loved those stories Uh, blogging was in its infancy at the time this is 2007 and uh, so the LA Times picked me up USA Today picked me up I became pretty regularly writing for these huge newspapers and they found me because of this tiny little blog I had created for friends and family and I came back to Atlanta because um, my husband and I, we found out that we were having a child. I, we, I actually, we funded our travels for almost four years um, wow. through. Uh, you did a four year stint. You had four years. Wow. We start, we are, the original plan was six months, but we actually traveled around the world for four years, really just writing entirely about food, um, writing the backstories of food. And um, we came back, I found out I was pregnant and I was like, okay, I want to be home and this is home for us. And I was still writing. I was writing for a bunch of big news journals. Um, but I wasn't super thrilled because I couldn't travel because I had a baby and a little baby. So I said, well, you know what? 
instead of writing about travel, how about I introduce travelers to my city? And so I launched Unexpected Atlanta Tours. It was a food tour company at, at first. Uh, now we actually do Atlanta Food Walks, which is the food tour side and Atlanta History Tours. And uh, we kept on getting uh, people asking us on the tours, hey, you know, this is such great information. Do you happen to have a book? And I was like, <laughs> no, I don't have a book, actually. Uh, and about Two years ago, a publisher reached out to me and they said, you know, we were looking for a writer to specifically write about Atlanta's culinary history. Um, you know, and they had seen all my credentials and they were like, would you be interested in doing this? And I was like, okay, I've got no time at all. So sure, writing a book seems like a great idea. Um, and that's that's how the book came to be. I, I ended up uh, writing it and it's been really awesome. I think uh, partly because of the fact that I do get to talk to so many history nerds yes, like us. Yes, get to meet others. Uh, yes, I get to meet <laughs> them all and um, just finding these stories, discovering these stories. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. I think one of the most um, exciting parts to me yeah. has really been the fact that I get to tell stories that nobody is telling. Um, so when writing this, I mean, I have my favorite stuff too, but what, what was your, your favorite piece of information? Uh, that's like asking a parent, <laughs> what's your child? favorite child? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one of my favorite pieces actually was really teasing out the story of Myra Miller. People ask me all the time, what's your next book? Uh, I, sh I want her to be the topic of my next book. And, and Myra Miller, the story is that uh, back in the uh, 1800s, so she was actually born in Virginia. She was a slave. Uh, and she uh, was apparently a phenomenal cook. She was sold to a state senator in Georgia. And then she was his cook at the, in, as a slave for you know close to 30 years. And then, of course emancipation happens in 1865 and she is emancipated and she leaves her employer which is seriously gutsy yeah. to do because most I mean honestly most of the former slaves at that time they stayed with their employers and they were being made you know being paid very yes. little but she leaves she comes to the city of Atlanta and she says she's going to start up her own business she starts up a bakery and she is at this point when she opens up the bakery she is 70 <gasps> years old wow and it becomes Atlanta's premier bakery there's actually amazing um, articles in which they talk about her baked goods and they say they're masterpieces of culinary genius. Mind you, this is a time period where basically African-Americans, the newspapers are talking yeah. about them as, you know, oh, animals. Yeah. Or that special section was like what the Negro is doing. Exactly. I mean, that one exactly. kills me. And, that's the, and it's a little paragraph of everybody lumped together. Yes. And it's very, so what year are we talking about that she came to Atlanta? So she comes to Atlanta in 1870. So wow. very, very, you know, very soon. After Five years Soviet, after the, wow. Very soon after the Civil War ends, she comes to Atlanta. And, um, you know, this is kind of, I think, another piece is that she actually must have somehow or another learned how to read. Um, because there is, in the Census Bureau, she is actually one of the few African-American women who they, they used to, in the census at that time, and I don't know if you've seen this, they would actually list, if a former slave was literate, they would put in parentheses L. Um, so after her name, it says L. I don't know how 
she learned how wow. to read. But that's a huge jump up for a cook because, I mean, if you cook and I, I cook, uh, yes. you you need to be able to know your measurements yeah. you, you, to make the perfect cake. And that's what she's baking where you don't mess around. Yeah, that's you the don't thing. mess you can't around. Wing it. And the thing about baking is that, you know, th- at that time period, they didn't have the stoves and the ovens that we have today where the, the temperature is perfect, perfectly wow. regulated. She was baking on a wood stove. I mean, like, imagine going to a campfire and you have to bake a cake on that campfire and the cake has to be perfect perfectly even not burnt i mean imagine how difficult that is her ability to actually read and write was a huge leg up and she dies very wealthy she actually moves her bakery multiple times dies very wealthy she actually buys her own obelisk at Oakland Cemetery, a woman, an African-American woman in this time period buys her own obelisk in Oakland Cemetery. You can still see it. It's in, the, there. in the African-American section yeah, in Oakland? It I is. I had it's, no idea. It's it's big. It's uh, it's quite large. It's like quite tall. Unfortunately, um, as is the way of things, uh, it's kind of been worn down a bit. Yeah. So you can't see a lot of the writing okay. on it, but you can definitely see her name. And she funds her daughter to um, go to Oberlin College. So her daughter then gets her an education, sends her daughter up to Oberlin, which is uh, at that time the premier institution for African-Americans in the whole country. And then her daughter comes back and her daughter then becomes a, a teacher at the store school, which is one of the, yeah, first, the first schools for black yeah, kids in Atlanta. One of the first schools for black kids in, America, in, in Atlanta. And she does all this because of her cooking skills. I mean, and so I do a lot of book talks around the city. And one of the first things I almost always say to people is, you know, I hate this phrase that, oh, a woman's role is in the kitchen and that being used as a derogatory statement. Because actually a lot of women like Myra Miller, because of their success, because of their skill in the kitchen, they did extremely well. So yes, in Myra Miller's case, a woman's place was in the kitchen, but that was a good thing. She succeeded. And not only did she succeed, she led to her daughter being educated, which who knows how many students her daughter must have impacted as a teacher. I love that story. I I want this book to come out now. So this is, I mean, I really, I want to go up to Virginia. I want to find out more about her life. Um, The senator who owned her, he actually was asked multiple times to sell her, and he refused. So she must have been... That good. Yeah, she must have been that good. Um, She had seven children. So, I mean, just boss lady, like I like to say. To segue into that, because one of the most fascinating things I learned from here is that switch from the kitchen being outside to inside right you talked about that and that just blew my mind so Mm -hmm. if you can just kind of cover that and then we can go into some other things but that one was sure so you know we have a tendency today uh, to think about the kitchen as the heart of the home I mean actually it's very funny because uh, right now my husband and I are in the process of building a house which is but anyway what's interesting is right now in in today's modern society the kitchen is smack in the middle of every house. You know, everybody talks about an open floor plan. You want your kitchen right there at the center of the house. It's a huge, huge adjustment. And that happened over 
close to 300 years in Atlanta's history. Originally, I mean, when you think of like what the Native Americans cooked on, the Native Americans would cook on fires that were always going to be kept outside of the homes. Um, you know, the Muskogee who lived here, I mean, you know, mentally, I think people have this vision of Native Americans living in teepees. But here in the South and here in Georgia, the Muskogee were the main tribes, and they actually lived in log cabins. Um, pretty similar, honestly, to what you would think of like in Little House in the Big Woods or Little House in the Prairie, those style log cabins. And so they would keep the fire outside because you don't want the whole log cabin going up into flame. Then once the colonists come in, they're also really cooking outside. Uh, They started to build in the late 1700s um, outhouses or kitchen houses. Uh, And this is really common. Actually, if you ever go up to Mount Vernon in Virginia, or even if you go uh, to Monticello, uh, even here in Atlanta, if you go to the Atlanta History Center, they have the Smith Family Farms. And if you go to the Smith Family Farms, um, in the back, they actually have the kitchen. And you can see the kitchen is not attached to the house. It's a whole separate building. And if you're not looking at it, and if you don't know what it is, you won't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Because it literally just looks like a straight wooden building with a big pit in the middle. And that pit in the middle might have been where the fire is, or there might have been a gigantic fireplace. The fireplace that that the slaves usually used was about four to six feet in length. It's huge, massive fireplace. And they would um, hang all the pots on that. So our word oven, actually back in that time period, was a specific object. So an oven was not what we think of an oven. Um, In that time period, an oven was a cast iron oven. I don't know if you've ever cooked with like a Le Crisette or something like that. Yeah, I have. Yeah, or the the knockoff. I have the (laughs) knockoff. That's right. But that's the type of oven that people were cooking with at that time. So just like... So that was an oven, that that container. That was an oven. That container was an oven. You would, you know, mix your your cake mix or whatever, put it into that oven, sit on top of the fire. And the oven, um, so, you know, today, actually, what's funny is the Lycrosettes, you know, they're flat on the bottom. But imagine that your Lycrosette had little feet on the bottom and you would stick the feet and that's how you bake. So everything baked completely in wood fires. And that was horrible. I mean, it was horrible because here these poor women are sitting in a shack with these six foot long fires uh, with really no ventilation at all. And they're cooking the whole day long. Uh, You know, they would start around 4 a.m., 3 to 4 a.m. And unfortunately, the cook also lived in the kitchen. Um, Slave owners wouldn't normally provide lodging for the cook. The cook would sleep in the kitchen. And it's this shack with just this huge fire and uh so they'd start at four in the morning and maybe not be done until midnight 11 o'clock something like that and they're in there the whole day long just cooking then after the civil war happens uh, and this is i think a really fascinating piece that a lot of people tend not to think about or even know about uh after the civil war happens Uh, the former slaves are now able to leave. They're able to leave these employments, which is a huge deal. The first time that they can choose where they want to work. So a lot of them say, you know what? I don't want to work for this horrible person anymore. And they leave and there's this 
big problem in the city of Atlanta, um, and it's a lack of cooks. Um, the city of Atlanta actually has, I mean, it, I, I include a few of these articles in the book, but there were, I mean, when I was researching, I found close to a hundred articles where editors, where people are complaining in this post-Civil War time period, this reconstruction time period about the fact that there are no good cooks left wow. in the city of Atlanta. And it's, of course, very funny um, the way in which they would phrase this because they would say, oh, well, there's no good cooks because these white women are no longer able to teach them uh, how to cook, which is, of course, nonsensical. No, there were no good cooks because the best cooks, like Myra Miller, were leaving and they were forming establishments on their own. Or maybe they were working for the big hotels where they were getting paid a lot more money. They just you know, were going, or maybe they were going to the North where there were more opportunities. But getting back to your original question about, um, you know, tran- the transformation from uh, the outside kitchen to the inside kitchen, well, all of a sudden, um, in this post-Civil War time period, white women have to learn how to cook. And this is a huge, huge deal uh, for because many, many white women, I mean, they were 50 years old, 60 years old, they had no idea how to boil water. I mean, couldn't make a sandwich. Um, You know, couldn't do anything that we take so much for granted today. Um, And so uh, there is a very famous um, cookbook that comes into being. It's uh, a woman um, and she, uh, her name is Annabella Hill and she's a white woman. She actually pulls together this cookbook to teach people the basics of Southern cooking. And the very front of that cookbook the intro she says is we need to get out of this habit of the outside kitchen men you need to get your kitchens connected to the home so that the kitchens are more convenient for your white women i mean nobody was thinking about convenience when there were slaves but now all of a sudden women are having to you know these white women the yeah they don't want to go outside yeah they don't want to they don't want to go outside in this unventilated horrible place and so they say okay we want to start cooking this is actually the transformation into using um, wood stoves rather than the wood fireplace um you know and the wood stoves is kind of like the cast iron stoves that you see in like old houses, that sort of thing. Now, late 1800s, all of a sudden, there's this big shift towards kitchens becoming part of the home, but they're usually just like a lean to a tiny little spot. Uh, But then by the 1920s, after the Great Depression occurs, very first people to get laid off are cooks and domestic help. Um, And so then in the 1920s, again, there's a shift to gas cooking and gas stoves. And now all of a sudden, the homes start to become bigger, incorporating in the kitchen. And that's actually, uh, I don't know if you've done an episode on Layla Ross Wilburn. I did a mini one for Patreon people. Okay, yeah. yeah, I thought you had, I couldn't remember. But if you look at her architectural designs, um, and I live in Decatur, so there's a, t- uh, there's a ton are. of Layla Ross Wilburn. Um, and one of the fascinating things about her is because she specifically says, you know, I want to build homes for women the way that women need homes. She was a woman, and so all of a sudden she starts building these bigger kitchens, designing bigger kitchens. Uh, there's actually a house that just went on the market in Indicator that's a little Ross Wilburn home. The kitchen's gorgeous. I mean, even by today's standards, 100 years later, the kitchen is big, it's beautiful, um, and it's 
because she realized, hey, let's have this shift where women are now co- white women are yeah. now cooking. It's funny. I have a friend that lives in a Leela Ross Wilburn, and it, I love her kitchen. Yeah. And, you know, you go into a historic home, and that's normally the part that suffers. And I've always thought about that when I was in there. I was like, this is a great kitchen. I mean, and it's actually, I think, to me, it really shows the importance of having people who are speaking up for their gender, you know, in, you know, it's just just this need for diversity. And one of the things that I found in writing this book that was a little difficult, honestly, is that 90% of Atlanta's historians have been white heterosexual men. And food preparation has largely been done by African Americans, by women, and now, today, mostly by immigrants. So It was never the white men. It was never so, white men. Yeah. I mean, the white men may have owned the restaurants. And, you know, like, for example, um, Duran's restaurant, uh, Kimball House, those are large white male-owned restaurants. Uh, Duran's, actually, he was a cook. So, and it became one of the most important restaurants in Atlanta, really defined the way in which the restaurant business is today. Uh, But he was a cook. And because he was a cook, he really thought about, okay, how should restaurant kitchens be created? So he, he was the first that had major ventilation systems put in, like, industrial strength and ventilation systems put in because he was a cook, you know. And if you don't cook, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of these restaurants in the early days, you know, the the owners weren't cooks, uh, you don't put in these devices that you really need. So who are they hiring? I mean, I never thought about that. These early restaurants and men are owning them. Who are they hiring to cook in them? Black men. Black men. Black men. Interesting. Um, and actually, I yes. can show you. Um, if you look, there's a great picture um, smack in the middle of my book somewhere. Uh, let's see if I can find it. There's a great picture in here that actually shows the Folsom Reading Room. And the Folsom Reading Room is um, a really popular restaurant in this late 1800s time period. And it was a restaurant where white men would go and eat at the restaurant. Here it is. It's on page 88. Uh, And you can see that everybody who is working there, it's all black men. Wow, that's fascinating. It's all black men. Uh, So, you know, restaurants today, it's funny when we think about it. Today, we all take restaurants for granted. Yeah, I mean, there's a restaurant like everywhere. Uh, Like I said, I live in Decatur. There's probably close to 150 restaurants within two miles of me where I live. And, you know, this is a separate question, which is how do you define a restaurant? Um, If you define a restaurant as any eating establishment, maybe there's even more than 150. But in this time period in the late 1800s, restaurants were institutions for white men to eat, where black men cooked and served them. Women were not allowed to eat at restaurants as well as uh, black men could not eat inside these restaurants. And so they weren't hiring black women just because it was a gender thing? Yeah. Uh, wow. So black women could not cook at restaurants. Black women could cook at uh, boarding houses because boarding houses would be owned by white women, but black women would not cook at restaurants at wow. all. That is so fascinating. I didn't, it's, that's what I said, this entire book I felt like, like every page, I'm like, wow, I didn't know, I didn't know. Um, but let's go to the early Atlanta. So we both talked about this. It's a period of time that is not covered in a lot of books. 
um, except Franklin Garrett stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, but so I'm very curious on the first restaurant, if we know that information. Well, this goes back to my question. What's a restaurant? Oh, okay. So if you ask Franklin Garrett, who is you know the Atlanta historian, um, Franklin Garrett says that the very first Atlanta restaurant was a restaurant by a tiny Frenchman named Tony McQuino. And Tony McQuino, um, he opened up a little shop underneath uh, Wheat's Grocers, which basically served three things, ham, eggs, and oysters. That's what Franklin Garrett says. But if you ask me, I don't think that that's accurate. I think that is um, not accurate because actually the very first entrepreneur in Atlanta was an old woman and her daughter who used to sell root beer and cakes to passersby. Uh, This is back in 1840. Wow. So this is before Atlanta, before before Terminus, before, I mean, this is, this is when Terminus doesn't even have a name. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is literally. The railroad had just come. The railroad hasn't even come at this point. They're just like, they're just setting it up. And she realizes that there are these workers. So she sets up out of her house. She starts selling root beer and cakes. Nobody has recorded this woman's name or her daughter's name. But if you ask me, that's the first restaurant. Second restaurant in Atlanta is actually a great story, which you should do in a later podcast. I've I've got so many podcast ideas for you. Um, There's a man named Ransom Montgomery. I know Ransom's story. Yes, I never even thought about that being like a restaurant. See, you have a great point. (laughs) Like I knew his story, but it never pieced together tell it because it's an amazing story so ransom montgomery was uh a free black man he actually was the only slave owned by the state of georgia and what happened was that he was previously owned by a man and he ends up on his own saving a whole train load of people so he um was out on the chattahoochee one day he saw that it's kind of crazy how it happened but apparently the train was running into something and he's um you know there's some concern that the train is going to explode and so he somehow single-handedly removes all these logs and the train is able to pass the whole train full of passengers like 60 to 100 or something like that passengers are rescued and to reward him the state of georgia buys him and then they make him a slave of georgia uh but he was basically a practically freed man because he really wasn't you know the state didn't do anything with him so he was considered a practically free man and actually um if you've read the black side the black side is this amazing book that was actually written back in the late 1800s and it is by a reverend and it is the only history of atlanta written by a black man and so in this book uh it's uh it's carter it's er carter reverend carter so it's called the black side a partial history of the business religious and educational side of the negro in atlanta uh published by uh berkeley university of california at berkeley in 1894 and so he he refers to ransom montgomery as one of the first two free black people in atlanta so ransom montgomery um ends up he has to do something and so what he does is he actually sells ginger cakes and that um, he made that he either he made or it or somebody something. else wow. made it who knows maybe his wife made it um and he sells these at the train and so if you ask me that's the second restaurant in atlanta (laughs) i love that i again i knew that story but i I kind of forget the piece of him selling the food i think we tend to 
a lot of people don't focus on the food, right? Well, that's, and that's, I think, one of the problems, right, yeah. is how do you define a restaurant? If you define a restaurant as, okay, you're sitting down with a white tablecloth, then in 1910, there were only 10 restaurants in the city of Atlanta. And that's according to the census. I mean, that's what they say in the year 1910, um, which I have 10 restaurants, like, you know, you on my street, yeah. you know, within walking distance of me. But if you define a restaurant as a place in which food is being served, there were a lot of restaurants in the city, and most of them were being owned by African Americans and by women. Uh, and they're ones that are not talked about at all. That's so incredible. So we've been covering black women and black men, and then you mentioned earlier immigrants. How do immigrants fit into Atlanta's story? Yeah, so actually immigrants have always been a part of Atlanta's food history. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, again, we have this tendency to think, oh, well, Atlanta didn't have much immigration until the 70s after JFK or even until 1995, 1993 with the Olympics. It's truly fascinating if you ever get the chance to go out to Westside to see the Chinese um, burial yes. grounds. So thank you for mentioning this because I did a, I talked about um, Greenwood mm-hmm. and they have the Greek section and they have the Chinese section. And, you know, the Greek section, I mean, I kind of knew a little bit of Greek history, but the Chinese section blew my mind. I'm like, because just like everybody else, I associate later immigration for Atlanta. I'm like, where was this Chinese immigration? And then, you know, in a passing article, it was, uh, I think it was the 1906 race riot time, um, you know, the Chinese ambassador, somebody was here. And, And again, it's like a whole rabbit hole. I'm like, what is happening? So in this late 1800s time period, there's a lot of Greek individuals living in the city as well as a lot of Chinese. Uh, and I won't say, I mean, by lot, I would say, you know, 100 or less. For Atlanta, a lot. But I mean, like for, I said, for, because we think no yes, immigration. For Atlanta, a lot. And um, the Greeks actually were hugely important in the city's food history. Um, the early Greek individuals, they actually mostly set up fruit carts, and then eventually they set up little food carts, well, today we would call food trucks. Oh, yeah. And then um, they eventually set up the first city's first restaurants. Between 1910 to 1920, there's this explosion in Atlanta's food, and a lot of that explosion comes through the Greek immigrants. But one thing, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the 1906 race rights because, you know, again, one of my real philosophies is how do we challenge the perceptions that we have about Atlanta's history, especially since much of that history was looked at from a certain perspective. The white male perspective. I mean, it's yes. hard. It's all, there's so many articles and you're like, okay, great. It's a white man re- writing this. Exactly. And Decatur Street is, in my yes. perspective, one of those big things that we need to talk about. So the 1906 race rate, and it all starts here at Decatur Street. And there's this tendency for people to say, oh, well, Decatur Street, it was just this, you know, this place of low virtue, and there were tons of breweries and bars, and it was in such a bad place that even the city of Atlanta's police had set up headquarters there. And while that is all true, uh, Decatur Street was really the only place in the city where immigrants lived and yeah. worked, where African-Americans lived and worked, uh, whereas where white people also could come and live and work. So in my mind, I often think that Decatur Street was the 1900 equivalent of Buford Highway today. I think you're so right. In some kind of fantasy world, I've never said this out loud, 
if I ever wrote a book, it'd be on Decatur Street. <laughs> yeah. Because it is this magical place and women, w- even white women would go there to, yes. to dance yes. and to drink. And that was a big problem. But it definitely gives you that vibe that I think Atlanta doesn't always have that you know, big city immigrant culture clashing vibe. Like, I always feel like if I could go back, I'd go back to Decatur Street. Like, hey. Well, there's actually this great article in 1901 in which, um, and, it, you know, it's funny looking at, at it from the modern perspective because in that article they talk about how vile Decatur Street is, and they specifically say it's a Congress of Nations on Decatur wow. Street, which to me sounds Sounds great and delicious. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, the other thing that happened on Decatur Street is that, you know, they frequently talk about how there were these six-by-nine stalls selling food. A six-by-nine food stall is our modern-day food trucks, you know, or maybe what you might see at something like Pond City Market, you know. So, you know, we have this tendency, I think, to look at it from the perspective of um, the historians who were writing about it at the time. And I think one of the really fun parts for me in writing this book is to question everything, especially because so much of the city's history has been associated with food. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is great. So I'm (laughs) so excited um, for your future books, but also I want you to tell everybody where to get this book Yeah. um, and then what you have coming up where people can see you speak. Sure, absolutely. So you can buy the books anywhere. Uh, Of course, you can get it on Amazon, but if you like bookstores like I do, um, you know, there it's at Eagle Eye. It's at pretty much every bookstore in the city. Um, It's at the Atlanta History Center. It's all over the place. Ways to see me or learn more about Atlanta's food history. First off, you can always subscribe to my um, Facebook feed, which is Unexpected Atlanta. And uh, we also put out this awesome newsletter, which uh, actually has little history blurbs, uh, usually on a monthly basis. Like, for example, I did a really fun blurb on the history of refrigeration in Atlanta, which is actually really interesting. I'm going to sign up for this. I didn't know it existed. (laughs) So... Um, there's that. And then you can come and take any of our tours. Um, so our tours, I run Atlanta Food Walks as well as Atlanta History Tours. We're the city's number one rated food tour company. And we do some really amazing food tours. Uh, our one in downtown is actually focused on the impact of food in the civil rights movement. Um, and we go and eat at really important historic locations like Pascal's and the Municipal Market. Uh, or you can come over to Grant Park and we can, you can take our tour, which is actually founded really on the founding of Atlanta and about how Atlanta is a city built on food. Uh, And we go through Oakland and talk about the foodie side of Oakland, which is really fun. Um, And then uh, last but not least, I do a lot of book events, Um, usually about once a month. I actually have one coming up on February 27th at the DeKalb History Center. And it's a lunch and learn, um, but it is all about African-American history and uh, associated with Atlanta's culinary history. That's awesome. I'm going to put links for everybody also to all these things, the books and the events, so that it's one click away. Um, And I just want to say thank you so much for coming to nerd out with me. This was great. And we're going to definitely have you back to talk about maybe part two or part three and four. We'll see. We can, I can, I can talk all (laughs) All day day long with you. So anytime (laughs) I'm happy to come, um, I'd love to come sometime and talk about, you know, like the varsity, busy bees, all that. That's some great history. The iconic stuff that a lot of people remember. Yeah. And that's all really fun history. And, um, you know, and of course the municipal market has an amazing history and it's one of my favorites. And I did a mini episode. So this is her and I were talking the other day about, I did a mini episode for Patreon um, people, but it was, 
was only you know eight minutes in so i just got the brief overview um but we'll have her come back and do more on that so thank you so much thank you victoria loved being on here Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember, all of the links for the book and Akila's company and events are in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating or review. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.